All right, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And as we prepare to look into the rest of Matthew chapter 1 today, it's important for us to remember that Matthew wrote this gospel account with a Jewish audience in mind. And so Jesus is presented as the promised, the prophesied from the Old Testament, son of David, the king, and therefore the Christ. And in order to be the Christ, the promised Messiah, Jesus had to be the son of David, the heir to the throne. So to accomplish this task of, of showing Jesus to be the rightful heir, Matthew provided us with that genealogy in Matthew 1, uh, verses 1 through 17, which followed Jesus' family tree from Abraham to and through David and then right through Joseph. Joseph, the son of David, heir to the throne. It makes sense then that as the narrative begins in this gospel, as we, as we begin to hear the story of the birth of Jesus, Matthew's going to focus in on the perspective and the part played by Joseph. So we're going to hear a lot about Joseph um, or focus in on him more so in this narrative today. And we'll learn much about Jesus. Remember, the gospel isn't about Joseph. It's about Jesus. And so we are going to learn much about Jesus from the part that Joseph plays in this story. And we'll also learn about Jesus from the part that Joseph doesn't play, as in not being the biological father of Jesus. And what we'll see in this passage um, is Jesus being introduced to us, introduced to this uh, Jewish audience reading the Gospel of Matthew as the son of David, as the son of God, as Emmanuel, God with us, and then, of course, as our Savior. Christ will be exalted over all today in this text. So let's go ahead and start reading in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and so Mary and Joseph are engaged, uh, before they came together, meaning before they physically consummated their relationship, before they moved into the same home together, and so on and so forth. Before they came together, she was found to be with child. And we say, uh-oh. Uh, what would we think if this is where the period was at the end of this sentence? Uh, Mary is engaged to Joseph. Their wedding celebration has not yet taken place. They have not yet been together. And she's pregnant. What happened? But Matthew wastes no time. There is no backstory. There is no buildup. He gives, he gives this answer right within the same sentence. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. From the Holy Spirit. But Joseph doesn't know this yet. We know this. Matthew lets us in on this. But Joseph does not know this yet. And her husband, Joseph, realized they're engaged, but he's called her husband. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Uh, now, just to give us a little background and context, let's talk for a moment about what this time of betrothal would have looked like for Mary and Joseph. And at that time, for all husbands and wives. Uh, first, the bride-to-be 
could be as young as 12 or 13 years old when the marriage contract was made. So 13 was old enough for marriage for the girls. So Mary was quite likely a young teenage girl at this time. She could have been 13, 14, 15, something like that years old, which is, which is baffling to us. Uh, teenage girls, where are you? Which is baffling to us given the way we see teenagers in our day and age. And, and frankly, now even 20-somethings in our day and age. Um, the whole idea of being a teenager realizes a new thing. It's less than 100 years old. The term teenager is less than 100 years old. Uh, this is a new thing for us, for mankind. Uh, the men were typically several years older than the girls. The age of the man could vary a good deal. Uh, they had to be mature enough. I didn't say old enough. They had to be mature enough to lead and provide for their new home or else they just simply weren't marriage material and their parents wouldn't go forward. Marriages also were almost always agreed to by the parents, meaning moms and dads picked their child's spouse, arranged marriages, and all God's parents said, amen. So, that's one of those things that sounds terrible when you're on this side of it. Doesn't sound so bad when you're on the other, right? <laughs> but in that arrangement, the groom or, or the groom's family was responsible to provide payment of, the, uh, of some sort to the family of the bride. It was a dowry or, or a bride price, uh, which would at least cover the cost of the wedding or uh, perhaps at least serve as like an insurance if something went sideways during that time of betrothal or engagement. And now once the contract was made, once the couple was uh, betrothed, they were legally married. The contract was binding. And typically one year later, the marriage would be celebrated, consummated, and then on with life, the couple would go. So uh, since the contract was binding, if one of them proved unfaithful, if something went wrong during that year, uh, they would have to divorce if they weren't going to finish the process. Or, uh, then we would also look at it from this perspective, if one of them died during their engagement, the other would be considered a widow or widower. Another aspect of this time that's far, far different than how we do things today is that during that betrothal period, during that about a year time, the bride and groom spent little to no time at all with each other. We think that might be crazy, right? They spent little to no time at all with each other. No date nights, no wedding plan planning, no time alone by any means. Nothing like that. This was a year they were separated from one another. So even if they had known each other well before, their parents agreed to put them together that year was going to be a time of separation for them. Okay, this, and this year of engagement was used as a proving ground, testing their loyalty, testing their fidelity to each other as they anticipated the special day when they would finally be able to be together as husband and wife. And it's in this time of waiting during this year that Joseph 
hears that Mary's pregnant. So think about this. They weren't together. So Mary didn't secretly tell Joseph in the car after a dinner and a movie that she was pregnant. That's not how Joseph found out. Joseph was told. And all he knew was that his fiancée was pregnant and that baby wasn't his. He'd been passing the test. Joseph had been proving loyal. Mary, it looks like she hasn't. It looks like she hasn't been loyal. So it's remarkable to see the character of Joseph as we see him respond to this potentially terrible news. No one had shared with him any news of abuse or anything like that. So for all he knows, Mary has been adulterous. Mary cheated on him. And in the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 22, God decreed that if an engaged woman were to sleep with another man, both the woman and that man were to be stoned. In Joseph and Mary's day, since they weren't executing people under Roman law, the norm would have been to at least publicly shame her. To bring her before everyone, to tell everyone what she had done. Making sure everyone knew that Mary had been unfaithful. If she couldn't be killed, if they couldn't put her to death, at least they could kill her reputation. Does that make sense? That would have been typical. But Joseph didn't want that. He knew he couldn't marry her. It wouldn't have been just or right. She was, she's going to have another man's child, as far as he knew. But he still desired to show love to her by allowing her to move on with her life, or at least to be removed from this extra humiliation. And so Joseph decides to extend mercy to Mary by divorcing her quietly not desiring to bring any more shame on her than perhaps she was already experiencing. Now, however, as we know, Joseph was slightly misinformed. And now an angel's about to fill him in on some important details that Matthew has already let us in on. Verse 20. But as he, as Joseph, considered these things, think about God's timing, not a moment too late. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, and then what does the angel call him? Joseph, son of David. There's our reminder as to why Joseph had to be the guy. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you, Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So there's much to talk about in these verses. Let's start with the names and the prophecy, and then we'll talk about Joseph, okay? First, the name Jesus. We talked about this a little bit last week, but the name Jesus was actually very common in Jesus' day. Uh, One of my daughters asked me this morning, why are so many of my friends' moms named Sarah? 
She has that. There are names, aren't there? And any one of our generations, we grow up, we go to school, and there's three Sarahs, or there's four Mikes, or Johns, or whatever in our classes. Jesus was a very, very common name then. So it's not like Jesus would have gone to school and, and other kids hear his name and they'll go, ooh, whoa, that's strange. He probably would have been many, one of many Jesuses, maybe even in his hometown. Okay? And it makes sense why his name was so popular. The name Jesus comes from the Hebrew name that we pronounce as Joshua, which means the Lord or Jehovah, Yahweh, saves. If you remember in our study through John, there were a lot of people looking forward to the Lord doing some saving in those days, just not the way that God had planned. And of course, the unique thing about Jesus' name, call him Jesus of Nazareth, didn't have like a surname. So Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. Do you see how it's worded in verse 21? The angel said, you shall call his name Jesus for God will save his people from their sins. No. The Lord will save his people from their sins. No. It says to name the boy Jesus for he will save whose people? His people. That's you and me, by the way. Praise God. He will save his people from their sin. What did the angel just tell Joseph? Who is Jesus? Everybody else who named their baby boy Jesus was thinking about God doing some saving. Joseph named that baby boy Jesus because he was going to do the saving. The angel just told Joseph that Jesus is God. He is the Lord who saves. He is the Savior. And then there's this second name, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And this isn't some sort of confusion. The angel didn't tell Joseph to name Jesus the wrong thing or two different things. Jesus' middle name wasn't Emmanuel, okay? Matthew is bringing up this prophecy to show that Jesus is God's promise fulfilled. God's promise fulfilled. This prophecy in Isaiah, uh, some people say, seemed to have an immediate fulfillment. Uh, the verse Matthew quotes is Isaiah seven, fourteen, And in Isaiah 8, Isaiah and his new bride have a baby boy, and God promises that certain nations would be defeated, that Judah would be saved, and all of this because Emmanuel, because God is with us. But the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 had not yet been fulfilled until now. Jesus wasn't just coming to save people for God because God was with and for his people against these other nations and armies. Jesus is God with us. He is God with us, born of a virgin, having come to save his people from their sin. Now, Joseph, if you're Joseph, put yourself in his shoes or put yourself in his sandals, okay? Do you see this angel and hear what the angel says to you and say, oh, okay, gotcha, sounds good, we will do. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? And I have to think that what Joseph saw as this angel spoke to him was a magnificent sight. 
Uh, Remember when the angel appeared before the Roman soldiers at the empty tomb, they fell over as if dead. The ladies who came afterward, the angels had to say, don't fear, don't fear. So I would guess that this angel sighting is not so much like Clarence and It's a Wonderful Life, and a little more like the angels who have to tell anybody who sees them, don't worship me, I'm just an angel. It was probably a powerful thing. But either way, the angel just told Joseph, the angel just told Joseph, Mary is still a virgin. That's important news. The child in her was conceived from the Holy Spirit. That's massive news. And Joseph, you are to name him. And Joseph's naming of Jesus is an act of legal adoption. In that act, Joseph becomes Jesus' legal father. The angel says, you are to name him Jesus. So the angel says, Joseph, marry this pregnant woman who's carrying a miraculous God child and adopt her son as your own. And we know from the previous verses that Joseph was a thinker. And he'd just been trying to discern the best way forward after hearing this news of Mary's pregnancy. And now God moves in the perfect timing in the only man on the face of the earth who could do this. The heart of this just man. God moves. And Joseph simply obeys. God's will is done. Verse 24. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. When did Joseph obey? He woke up and he obeyed. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And then what did he do? He called his name Jesus. Transaction complete. Joseph went forward and married Mary. I would guess in more of a private ceremony. Remember, people knew she was pregnant. Joseph found out through other people, so other people knew. And so in marrying her, he may also have taken away some of her public reproach. While he was probably bringing some ridicule and shame on himself. People would have been prone to assume that Joseph was the father. Or that Joseph simply chose to marry Mary, even though she had supposedly cheated. Even during Jesus' ministry, if you remember, people questioned his parentage. In John 8, the Pharisees, who had done their homework evidently, even accused Jesus of being born from sexual immorality. But of course, none of this shame, none of this ridicule was justified. None of it was. On the one hand, we might say, wow, poor Joseph. Poor Joseph. People must have thought Mary was terrible. And Joseph was either sinful or crazy to have married her. But isn't that just the fear of man talking? Isn't that just the fear of man? Raising our public reputation and persona over the truth of what God is doing. Joseph got to marry one of, if not the godliest young women you could ever know. Turn to, turn to Luke 1 real fast. This is Mary. And realize, she's a young teenage girl, and she's not married yet. 
And she just found out she's pregnant. Or she's going to be pregnant. And this is her response, starting in verse 46 of Luke 1. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. That's pretty good for a young girl, isn't it? And it's not just literarily powerful. She knew what she was talking about, and she loved the Lord, and she was thrilled that God would use somebody like her to do something so magnificent. Amazing. Amazing. And do you think she knew what it was like to be a young girl who got pregnant? Do you think that might have crossed her mind? And yet this was her response. Praise God. Praise God. Joseph and Mary's parents did a pretty good job putting these two together, didn't they? It's like they knew what they were doing. So none of this shame or ridicule was justified. And think about this. Joseph also got to name the Son of God. That's pretty cool. Joseph got to name the Son of God and become his earthly father. So let's not say, poor old Joseph. Let's not be like that. Let's be amazed at the grace of God, the grace of God that was showed to Joseph in sovereignly using him for this amazing task to raise up the Christ child, God in the flesh, who had come to save his people from their sin. Joseph, just like the rest of us, and just like the Apostle Paul, just like the Apostle Paul said, had to count everything this world has to offer as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Philippians 3.8, for his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Joseph believed the message and the command of God and was joyfully ready to embark on this mission that God had given to him. This was Joseph's act of worship. Now, just a side note, uh, we do see in this passage some information that's worth noting as it provides clarity on Mary, who, who she is and, and what she's not. Okay, verse 25 states that Joseph did not know her, meaning Joseph and Mary did not consummate their marriage physically until after, until after the birth of Christ. So Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born, but after the time of purification passed after the birth, Mary and Joseph conducted themselves as, as married couples should, and the two became one flesh, and other children were born. 
So Mary was not a virgin perpetually, not for the rest of her life. Uh, Matthew 13, for instance, mentions Jesus' four brothers and an unknown number of sisters. So Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters, all sharing the same mother. And then while we're on the subject, the Bible also never says anything about Mary being immaculately conceived. Uh, People think the immaculate conception is about Jesus, but it's not. It's about Mary. But Mary was not born without sin. Okay, Mary was not born without sin. In fact, as we read in Luke 1, Mary refers to her own need of a Savior, just like the rest of us. Jesus is the only one without sin. Jesus is the only one who was conceived without sin. Jesus is the only one who lived without sin. And Mary admits in Luke 1 and shares with you and I in rejoicing in the shed blood of Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, for our salvation. When Jesus saved his people from their sin, Mary was included in that list, just as you and I. Okay, so there's some important things to know about Mary. And we've learned about Joseph now, and we've learned a little bit about Mary. But what can we learn, most importantly, about Jesus from this passage? So we want to answer the question from this passage, who is Jesus? And there's four things. Number one, Jesus is the legal son of Joseph, meaning Jesus is the son of David. God made a covenant with King David that his throne would be established forever. And when Jesus asked the Pharisees in Matthew 22 whose son the Messiah was, they responded knowingly, the son of David. So you see, it was really important. It was massively important that Joseph marry Mary. Even though she was pregnant with a child that was not his own. Because when Joseph, the son of David, named Jesus as his own son, Jesus of Nazareth also became Jesus, son of David, heir to the throne. So that's number one. Jesus is the son of David. Number two, Jesus is the virgin-born son of Mary, conceived from the Holy Spirit, making Jesus the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. You know, this passage tells us that Joseph was a just man. And he was an obedient man in this passage. But Joseph was not a sinless man. And any son that came from him would be a sinner just like his daddy. Just like you and just like me. And so God miraculously fulfilled this promise that he had made through Isaiah. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And God miraculously fulfilled the promise that he'd made to Satan in front of Adam and Eve all the way back in the garden after the fall of man. You remember, God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the woman, so that in the womb of this young virgin girl Mary grew the one who was fully God and fully man. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. Philippians 2, 5 through 7 gives a succinct definition of this, or explanation, where Paul writes this, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is what God the Son did. If you remember that Matthew 22 passage I referred to earlier, this is how that passage goes. Matthew 22, verse 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, when he's writing the Psalms, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, if David calls the son of David Lord, how is he his son? This is what Jesus asked the Pharisees. And verse 46 says, no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone ask him any more questions. They'd been stumped. And by the way, the answer to Jesus' question, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Well, we know the answer. Because that son of David, that one, Jesus, was going to be also the son of God. Fully God and fully man. Jesus being fully God. uh, He was full of grace and truth. Jesus was the perfect image of God. Jesus was perfect in holiness. He is, right? Not was, but in his life. Perfect in holiness and without sin. Being fully man, Jesus was able to experience in the flesh, as we do, birth, growth, exhaustion, sleep, and the lack thereof. Hunger, thirst, sorrow, weeping, compassion, love, joy, temptation. All of these things, prayer, suffering, death, Among so many others. Imagine the God who spoke the universe into existence. Being born of a woman. Being wrapped up in swaddling clothes. And laid in an animal's feeding trough. Having to be changed. Having to be comforted. Having to be fed to survive. Having to learn how to crawl. Learn how to walk. Be the older brother who never does anything wrong and annoys his other brothers and sisters. The God of the universe humbled himself and took on flesh and dwelt among us and lived as a man. It's amazing. As it says in Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, we see with great clarity why God the Son, why he took on flesh, why he became fully man. It says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Christ won our victory at the cross. And he delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it says, it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, fully man, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, a satisfaction of the wrath of God for the sins of the people. Christ took on flesh to be the sacrificial lamb to die in our place, to suffer the wrath that we deserve. And as high priest, taking the blood of the Lamb himself as a satisfaction, as an offering, as a washing for our sin. This is what Christ did, and this is why he became man. In 1 Timothy 2.5, he is called the one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And these passages remind us of the final two things that Matthew 1 teaches us about Christ. He is the son of David. He is the son of God. Three, he is God with us. Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. God himself came to take care of our great need. He did it himself. And number four, Jesus is our savior. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. God had promised a king. Israel knew that. That's what they looked forward to. God had promised a king. In Isaiah 9, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, His Wisdom, Mighty God, His Power, Everlasting Father, He cares for His people, and He will bring peace. Of the increase of His government and of of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, And forevermore, in Isaiah, it says this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's happening. God said so. It's happening. This time is coming. The zeal of the Lord Lord of hosts will do this. God promised a king, and the king is coming. He has come, and he is coming. And God also promised us that king would be our suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. This suffering servant king who would make many to be accounted as righteous, bearing the sin of many and making intercession for the transgressors. And praise God, God makes promises and he keeps every promise he makes. Even the promise that required God the Son to become a little baby so that he could grow up to be a man, so that he could suffer and die in our place. 
taking the punishment of our sin upon himself at the cross, providing our salvation, giving us eternal life. And he rose from the dead. Amen. This is our God. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the son of David. He is the son of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And he is our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your wonderful love to us. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you showed your love to us in giving us Christ Jesus, our Savior. We thank you, Lord, that God the Son humbled himself and took on flesh and lived as we have lived on this earth. Lord, we thank you that he did all of that and yet without sin. And that he obeyed. That he performed the will of God and went to the cross. God, may we be awed. May we be amazed. May we be overwhelmed by the love and the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That nothing else this time of year or any time of year could capture our heart. That there would be no rival to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may our lives reflect that as they should, as they would, as we walk in a manner worthy of this gospel. And Lord, I pray that if there would be one who is here today who has never put their faith and trust in Christ, Lord, that you would work in their heart, that you open their eyes and their ears, that you would give them life today as they have seen the light of this world, Jesus Christ. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.